First Peter chapter two. It's great to see you this morning. If you're visiting with us, um, I hope you've been tracking with us through First Peter. If you're a regular attendee, I will say this: um, There's a part of me that that has a little bit of hubris and pride this morning because I just want you to know I'm the last man standing in the Powell home. Everybody's healthy now, so we're good. But it's been like a week and a half, and everything kind of concluded this past Wednesday, Thursday. But there's a, there's sort of a a pride thing, right? I didn't go down yet. Jokes aside, um, not when I read a passage like this. There's no hubris or pride. I just am humbled, and I hope you will be too. I don't know that I want God's word as much as I should, and I certainly don't think it's changed me the way that it should, and so I hope and pray that as his people, we are humbled and hungry this morning as we study this text together. So as an introductory question, think about that. Humbled and hungry, um, what, let, let's think hunger, what taste is in your mouth right now? Um, because we're about to spend time in God's word, and if you regularly worship with us, I do think that there's a hunger that I see among Christ Community Church for his word. And I get the privilege of looking at it on your faces sometimes, but do you have a hunger, a taste in your mouth right now for God's word impacting your life? You should. A sign of being a born-again disciple of Jesus is what we're going to look at this morning is that the imperishable seed's been planted in you. It's growing in you. It's of infinite value. It's the good news that was preached to you. It's living and it's the abiding word of God. It'll hold you in your time of exile. And Peter comes to this text here and he says, so you should be hungry for it like a baby who longs for milk. Are you? Is that, is that the hunger that defines you or governs you? What taste is in your mouth? Maybe it's not the word of God, if I'm just honest. Um, maybe it's money. You're just hungry for money. Jesus says you can't serve God and money. He may bless you with it, but you can't serve two masters. But are you hungry mostly for that? Or maybe you're, the taste that's often in your mouth is success or taste pining after that. Pride in your own performance. Maybe that's the taste in your mouth. Maybe the taste in your mouth this morning is pain. It's relational pain because you're not reconciled to someone you love. Maybe that's the taste that you have in your mouth this morning. Maybe it's not relational pain. Maybe it's relational sweetness and love and affection and the goodness of an earthly relationship God's given to you. Or if you have had the flu, maybe you taste nothing in your mouth. Literally nothing, said most people in my family over the last few weeks. Nothing. But I was at a business meeting this week and a guy stood and gave a presentation. He said this. He said, when I'm not working, I'm thinking about working. And when I'm not thinking about working, I'm asleep. So I'm probably dreaming about work. It's my passion. He said it. Driving question this morning is, what do you crave right now? What do you long for? Verse 2, like newborn infants crave the pure milk of God's word. It's quite the image, actually. Um, we'll see this morning there's a string of images together and they're not very connected. So Peter's going to go from crave the word like a baby craves milk. Then he's going to transition to living stones with Jesus as the cornerstone of a spiritual house with God as the brick mason, if you will. Just all these images. You'll probably say to me when it's all done, like, hey, Jim, stick to one image. It'd be easier. And I'd be like, Peter, please help me out here, man. Stick to one image. Because you all know I'm like a ping pong ball. So is Peter. Great man that he is. But we're going to start out with the image of a child, a baby longing for milk. 
And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me and let's long for this word together and ask for the images to be made clear for us. This is the word of God. Peter, by the Holy Spirit, writes to us, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you and who, for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of God. God. Father, help us. We pray we'd hunger for your word this morning. I pray that you would apply it by your spirit's power to us so that those who don't hunger get a taste in their mouth of how you know us. You expose us to ourselves by exposing us to you and you have a word for us. And we ask that you be glorified as we just rehearse it, seek to understand it, and you apply it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So there's a pretty clear division in this text between verses 3 and 4. If you're looking at your Bible, structure is a very important thing to understand meaning. So you see that between the two major images is kind of a shift. So if 1 to 3 is like a baby, if you say it like that, verses 4 to 8 is like a building or like a stone, right? So like a baby, like a stone in a building. Those are two sections, but they essentially are kind of the, have the same internal structure themselves. So both of us, those sections tell us to do something and kind of how we should do it and then talk about what God does and in a way how he does it. So that's what both sections do. So verses 1 to 3, what do we do? We long for milk, The Word of God describes it as pure milk, so I'm going to fly through some of these descriptors here in a bit. Um, Pure, as one commentator says, we're talking about how the Word of God that's living and abiding, it abides without preservatives. You don't have to change or add anything to the Word of God for it to stay relevant and last. The pure Word of God is effective in raising us up and in equipping us to live life. As C.S. Lewis put in his Screwtape Letters, and we talked Friday night about this, it's not Christianity plus anything. It's not the word of God plus anything. It's, it's, it's the scriptures by the Spirit inspiring those who authored it to write God's word and so we can receive it in an unqualified, uncontaminated, untwisted way. Um, there's no bright color additives needed in preaching or in teaching or in Bible study just to make the word of God palatable. Crave the pure milk of his word. And the, where, where, you, your Bible, ESV, says it this way crave pure spiritual milk. Do you see that? But the Greek word for spiritual is the Greek word logikon, which sounds a lot like logos, uh, logos, either way you say that. And in verse 23, 24, and 25, you've had the word logos used to describe the word of God. And so most commentators would say that even though the, a lot of translations have used the words crave pure spiritual milk, it's, it's crave the pure milk of the word. It's a rational word. It's a reasonable word. And as the Stoics would de- define the word rational, uh, it, it's, it's the word about true reality. 
That's what rationality is. What is reality? So crave the pure milk of the word which gives you a picture of what is true reality. That's what Peter is saying. We don't want to confuse this with, the, with Paul's use of the similar image. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, Paul's pretty, he's pretty amped as a church planting pastor apostle to write to the, the church at Corinth and say, you all are pretty much nothing like Jesus and you're not loving each other well. There's all sorts of power plays and trips and selfishness and pride and dissension. And so he says to the, to the people at Corinth, Paul says, but I, brothers, I cannot address you yet as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. You are babies in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So Paul uses the similar phrase, but he's saying it differently. He's saying, grow up, church. You don't just need milk like when you were a baby. You should crave the pure, full, solid food of the gospel that's gonna impact every part of your life. Stop being babies. That's what Paul says. Peter's not using it that way at all. There's no condemnation. There's no condescension. His point is this. If you've been born again, you crave the milk of God's word like a baby craves the nourishment of its mother. So the question for us is, is if you're born again, do you crave God's word? It's a very simple question. The mature can taste God's word in their mouth. Listen to these words of Jeremiah. A college friend showed this to me. Became our verse in college, actually, as a struggling college kid who wanted to obey and follow after God, loved his word, but loved the world. This was a verse we held to. Jeremiah 15, 13. Jeremiah the prophet says this. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Jeremiah 15, 13. The prophet's saying, I want to consume God's word. Psalm 34, we read it this morning. AJ did, taste and see that the Lord is good. The word is the Lord and the Lord is the center of the word. Have you tasted him? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, to taste him. But how do we taste him? His spirit working through his word to show us him. The word works. Do you crave it? Have you seen yourself grow in maturity in life following after Jesus? And part of maturity is I, I long for his, his word. There's a, there's a theory out there for preachers. And when I do the preaching workshops, we often talk about it in our questions in our small group. Is, is, it, is it right for a preacher to use their, their preaching text the following Sunday as their devotional passage for the week? Some pastors would say, no, 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 don't do that. You've got to be reading and growing and reading other things and not just always be preparing to present. Valid point, I would think. But then I've had other mentors in the faith push back and say, if you as a preacher are not having the word work on you and you're not devotionalizing in the text you're about to preach, you don't have any capacity to stand before God's people and preach it. You have to long for it, to understand it, to want it to change you. That's part of preparation and preaching. It's not just some homiletical exercise. The word works. Do we put ourselves in a position to hunger for it and have it do its work? What does God do if we are hungry for his word? Well, scriptures say clearly when we crave the milk of his word earnestly, he grows us up into salvation. Do you see that? The Greek word for grow in the text there, it's passive tense. So we don't grow, he grows us. It's an important thing to understand. We don't grow ourselves up, he grows us up. The same truth that births us, this imperishable seed planted in us, grows us. That's what Peter's saying. 
We're grown into fully rescued exiles while we wait for the full rescue that we know is coming because we've studied it in his word. We believe it to be true. I've been thinking a little bit, how does growth happen by the word? Well, first of all, the word causes us to grow by faith because we have to submit ourselves to that which is presented. And we can't see it with our eyes. We have to believe it by faith. The word presents to us the Lord of the word. He also presents us with a picture of the world of the Lord. It's his. It's all his. And the way of the Lord, his way of rescue, of sacrifice. We grow through the word by reflection when we we look in the mirror of the word of God and we see this sober picture that I am not who I think I am. I'm I'm as sinful as the people in this picture. I'm as desperate in need of mercy. If there's, if there's any salvation of all, at all, look in the Bible. I read it and I see person after person. If it's not but pure grace, there's no rescue at all. And in studying the word, I'm exposed not just to them who needed rescue, but to myself saying, there's nothing in me that can guarantee it, hold it, be assured of it if it's not for his true promises that are given to me in his word. It's his way of rescue. All that's in the scriptures. So the scriptures cause us to grow by faith. We grow by submission. I'm not the authority of my own life. By reflection, by repentance, by participation in the story. That's probably my favorite right now. I'm reading through the Old Testament. And when I realize that the salvation that you and I know is there's nothing new under the sun, right? Ecclesiastes tells us that. You ever see yourself in somebody else? I mean, I see myself in Peter. You see yourself in Peter, I'm sure. When we see the, the, the plot arc of rescue that's in the scriptures rehearsed over and over and over and you go, oh, no wonder that's what's happening in my life. I participate with a great cloud of witnesses and none of them are gonna say, I figured it out on my own and I rescued myself. In fact, if they, if they witness to anything, it's that they all have a similar plot arc of sin and disturbing need of rescue and, a, and an unbelievable capacity to continue to surprise themselves at the, at the extent to which they'll go in sin and self-love. We see that in, in all of the characters of Scripture. And yet, here's the scary thing. There's an immense problem of biblical literacy in the church. Even here. Um, th- th- there are people that feel like, I, I, just tracking with one sermon per week and I've got the Word of God influencing and affecting my life. Not true. Or, the Word of God is just not relevant, so I need to go not read the Word myself, but I need to read a book about the Word that somebody else wrote because they understand it. Jim, do you recommend a book about this or that? And I, I love that question. I often will try to answer that question if I can. But most times if someone says, Jim, do you have a book that you recommend about this topic? I'll tell them to read the book we're preaching through. Jim, do you have a book about God's this? Do you have a book about our submission this? And when we were preaching through the Gospel of John, I just kept telling people to read the Gospel of John. With regard to the issue you're wrestling with. Read the book of 1 Peter with regard to the issue you're wrestling with. See, because Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. You learned it from your parents and those spiritual mothers and fathers in the faith, how from child you were acquaint, childhood you were acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word speaks to everything. 
we're wrestling in our home, how often do we use the word to give our children counsel? Not our words, but the word, and let it sit there, and may God's Holy Spirit guide them to crave it in their situation. So let's be direct before we move into the other image that Peter has here. As regards the word of God and your life, is it your sustenance for living? Um, And in regards to the theme of holiness and obedience, of anything related to life, politics, sexuality, desire, marriage, work ethic, hardship, do you interpret anything you're going through Ask for God's help by means of God's people to use his word to interpret your situation. At work, at play, at home. What is intimacy? I don't know, what does the scripture speak about that? What is mission? What is community? What what does it mean to have a job? What does it mean to have pain? What does it mean to have struggle? Have you seen in your life the imperishable seed that's planted in you start to mature you and you have developed a hunger to find answers in God's word and the Spirit's equipped you to see it. And because my family's not here, I will say this. Um, recently, there was a conversation, and we were talking about when you're friends with people in the world, how do you know what to do when they start to make mistakes? Right? So uh, we, we, we lecture, we talk, we discuss, and finally, it was this, this thought of, Do I realize my job as a father is to equip my children to know that discipleship is walking with somebody toward Jesus? That's discipleship. So to my daughters, my son, I'd say, you have friends that you're walking with toward Jesus. What is mission according to the Bible? It's when you walk towards somebody with the message of Jesus, right? So you gotta know the difference. Discipleship, I walk with somebody to be obedient to Christ. Mission is I walk towards somebody who doesn't know Christ. Uh, But what is obedience? Sometimes obedience is walking from somebody who claims Christ but is not walking in conformity to Christ. And all of a sudden, all the lectures that Jim can give and whatever turns into, oh, those are three biblical categories. Discipleship, mission, and obedience. I can do something with that now. Do you realize with me that every part of your life, the word of God has the capacity to speak to it and God does speak to you through it because he's a revealing God of mercy and grace to condescend to us. So that's what Peter says, crave it. Do you crave it? There's a transition in verse four. When we love the word and we crave it like a child, like an infant craves milk, what are we doing? Well, we are coming to him. You see that next command, come to him. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, you go to him. The word come there in verse four, as you come to him, the Greek, it's a similar word to coming and approaching God in worship, coming into the temple to worship. How do we come to him? Well, scripture says we come to him as living stones connected to Jesus, the living stone, who is the cornerstone. I think this is just super cool. Um, Before there was Wayne the Rock Johnson, there was Simon the rock, son of John. Peter, Peter was the first rock, right? He's the rock. Isn't it cool here that when Peter gives an illustration, he doesn't say, come to me, I have some things to tell you about what I've learned. He says, I'm not the rock, I'm but a stone and a wall. Jesus is the living stone, the cornerstone upon which the household of God is built. And so he doesn't use a new image, he uses an image that God's people would be familiar with. He's gonna quote from Isaiah 28, you have that there in verse uh, Five, uh, six there. 
um, verse 6, excuse me. Let me explain what's going on in Isaiah 28. I think it's amazing Peter quotes here. So Isaiah, in the chapter 28 of, of, of the prophet Isaiah, he's saying to the priests and the prophets, the rebellious leaders, he's saying the word of God is going to expose you. You're going to be exposed to your pride, to your sin, to your violation of God's way. He, he says in Isaiah 28, the priests are drunkards. The prophets do not know how to even speak words of judgment. They stupor in their words. And in verse 13, just a few verses before what's quoted here, Isaiah says, the word of God to these false leaders is going to be precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. I mean, it's an amazing reading. Basically, the word of God is going to pile upon the rebellious leaders of God's, of, among God's people, and he's going to crush them with the weight of his holy law. And Isaiah goes on, and he says, a word to the rulers of Jerusalem, and he says, you're foolish to suppose that you have security. It's like, it, he actually uses an image. It's like you made a treaty with death and hell, so the lethal waters that are gonna wash over the rebellious among God, you think it's never gonna sweep you away. That's Isaiah 28. And then he comes to our verse 16 that Peter quotes. He says, no, there's only one building that can withstand the storm of coming destruction, and it's God's own house. Behold, I'm laying a, as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a righteous stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, and whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. Or in Isaiah, it almost says, whoever believes in him won't have to run away in haste. Peter quotes it and says, the stone upon which stability comes, is him. And, and it's not just that God's building a house, but even from Isaiah 28, what is the house? The house is him, refuge in him. We have that there. So you've got this architectural thought that I, I tried to use with the kids here. The cornerstone is the first stone that's set. And it's critical that it's set perfectly because both the angles of the wall, right, the angle vertical, and the levelness going out horizontal is, is, is it hinges upon the true nature of the original cornerstone that's set. Peter's saying, you come to him, you crave him like a babe, you want to know more of him in his word, but when you come to him, understand the one you're coming to is the sure cornerstone that God alone has said will be able to withstand the torrent of temptation, of trial, and even the judgment that's coming upon those who reject him. You understand you're connected to the stone of stability. And what does God do? Peter says, well, God's building up his people into a holy temple. So it's biological architecture here. Um, I, I am a big proponent of intelligent design just as a philosophical way of talking with atheists and naturalists and such. But let me just use this small picture. Think of God as the most unbelievably gifted architect and engineer. That's what Peter's doing. Landon is an engineer. He just told me how to do my little children's illustration better. Don't use the big, the, the gr big green one foundation. Set it up without it. And you take the cornerstone out, it's all going to fall apart. The kids will see it better. Thank you, engineer. I don't think of those things. Engineers are amazing. They, they can help pastors with children's messages, and it's just easy for them. Listen, God is the great architect and engineer and he's saying that he's building a growing house and here's how the growth happens in two ways. New stones are added. Isn't that awesome? 
When he saves and converts somebody, it's a new stone placed into a secure building with Christ as the cornerstone. How else does he grow? He perfects every stone because we're living stones, each of us. So we're growing and we're maturing. If you've ever done a wall project or something, I have placed a bad stone into the middle of a rock, I mean of a wall, and looked at it for forever long it's going to be there and be like, man, I tried to rush through that one. I should not have placed that one there, right? Or cutting tile, eh, it's good enough. Let's just stick it there. No, picture a building where the stones are going to be made perfect to fit the spot that they're made to fill. That's the basic image. God's the builder and he's building his people into a temple of his presence. Uh, the first Friday of January when A.J. did the Old, Test Old Testament history, he went through a history of the Old Testament and one of the themes of salvation is temple. We trace that theme through the Bible. I'll just do it super quickly. Moses. In the era of Moses, the rescuer of God's people, he led them in the wilderness. How did God set up his presence among his people? In a tabernacle, a tent that they could move. When David had a vision of building a temple for God, it ended up being David's son Solomon who built it, but now in Jerusalem, the city of God, you have a temple of God's presence. John chapter one, Jesus comes on the scene, and what does he say? John says that when Jesus came, he tabernacled among us. God's presence and full glory showed up. Acts chapter 1, what does Jesus say after he ascends to the heaven? What are his disciples supposed to wait for? The Holy Spirit to fall on you and what is happening now. Paul writes about it in Ephesians 2. So then you're no longer aliens or strangers, but you're fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you now are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Holy Spirit. Just this theme of temple. Where is the presence of God? The scriptures say it's here. It's us. It's now. We're built up by the living stonemason who connects each of us who are unique and beautiful. And that's one of the messages in this text. You are beautiful. Every one of you. Your history that may leave you grieving or broken, it's part of your story that makes you the stone that you are and you're a living testament of strength if you're connected to each other and to the cornerstone as the image says that you are. Peter, though, talks about the cornerstone of Jesus and he emphatically says we can't talk about the stability unless we talk about the rejection. See, the stone that God was gonna build his people around was a stone that was rejected. He quotes from Psalm 118. It was a stone of stumbling, Isaiah 8. I want you to understand the rejection of Jesus is a central part of setting the stone in place in the first place. That's essentially what is being said. And so Jesus quotes uh, uh, this actual Psalm 118 also in his parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21. So just let me share with you Jesus' words. He tells about a master who planted a vineyard. He went away and he leased the vineyard to others and the time of harvest came so he sent his servants back to the tenants and said, hey, the master wants his fruit now. And the tenants, they were wicked. Of the first set of servants, they beat one, killed another, stoned a third. The master, perplexed, sent more servants to collect his fruit. Same thing happened. Death to the servants. So then the master said, well, you know what? I'll send my son. I know they'll honor my son. In the scriptures, Jesus told this story that when the son came, they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When the owner comes, what will he do to these wicked tenants? Then Jesus said, have you never heard? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus was saying, 
I'm the son in the story, and I'm the rejected cornerstone that the builders, you spiritual leaders of Israel, you rejected me. And Peter got the point. He got the point so boldly, not just that we get to read about it now, and the book of 1 Peter is all about our stability. Remember, stand firm in the gospel the way the book ends. But Peter gets it, and in early after Jesus ascended to the heaven, and Peter and John were out in Jerusalem doing the work of an apostle, they heal a crippled man. It's an amazing scene. They heal this man who's crippled, Acts chapter 4. They annoy the, listen to all these people that are referenced in Acts 4. They annoy the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, who then gather the elders, the rulers, the scribes, Add to that, Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, the whole high priest family are present, and Peter and John stand before them. By the way, these are some of the same people Peter refused to stand before earlier because he denied Jesus. Now this emboldened man is going to stand there. Let me just read you. This is amazing what Peter says to them. They say, Peter, by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers to the people and elders, if, you're being, if we're being examined today because of a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means he's been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you builders he's become the cornerstone and there is no salvation in anyone else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved and when they saw the boldness of Peter and John perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished and they recognized he'd been with Jesus he quotes from Psalm 118 which he heard Jesus quote from which Isaiah spoke that the builders are going to reject Jesus. So what life do you think Peter expected for himself if he's connected to the cornerstone? Rejection by the builders. The builders of a greater culture of happiness and peace and joy. The, the, the rulers who are going to tell you a spiritual way to live your best life now instead of needing to turn to Jesus, the re rejected one. Peter says expect to be rejected because you're connected to the rejected one, but his rejection is how he became the cornerstone. This is how I want to end. Do you know your privileged stability and strength as being a living stone connected to other living stones who are connected to the cornerstone that was rejected? But his rejection was his way of rescuing you. Do you know your stability? It's an unbelievable thing to understand our stability. And so look in verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. Those who do not believe, those who reject the honor of the stone, of the cornerstone, are going to be rejected in the end. They will stumble. They will fall. They will rebel. But do you understand your honor of being connected to the cornerstone? We're going to talk about high priests next time, a royal priesthood. There's a lot of depth to these images. Let's just... Sink our teeth into the word honor. Do you see from the word that you're hungry for that this is the only honor that should matter in your life? That you are connected to other living stones, connected to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and you will be able to withstand all trial, all temptation, and even the judgment on your own sin because you're connected to him. Do you recognize the honor of that? If you do not recognize the honor of that, what will we all tend to do? We will tend to turn to other things for honor. 
And if we love God's word and we read his word and we, like I said earlier, we rehearse the story and the plot arc and we understand it, there, there's so many pictures of people who rejected the honor offered to them by the God of rescue. And it's ugly. Think of Pharaoh. His rejecting the Lord's honor resulted in his own destruction. Or I think of the sons of Eli in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the, the, the wicked priest's sons. They had the honor of being priests. Yet they made up their own way of collecting food and money from the people because they wanted to pad their own pockets and bellies and they took advantage of the women who came to offer sacrifices in the temple and they were destroyed because they didn't recognize the honor that was theirs. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is Saul. He's the chosen one of the people. He's this handsome king and and yet he doesn't recognize the honor that's been given him when God says, I will anoint you king over my people. So when he stands before God's people to be installed as king, where is he? He's hiding behind the luggage because he's terrified. He doesn't believe the honor is actually his. And so in 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 10, maybe it's 15, where he's rejected in the end, Samuel the prophet looks at Saul and says, why have you always been so little in your own eyes? Because you didn't believe the honor that was yours, so you sought so radically to create your own honor and it led to destructive decisions and you're rejected in the end. Or I think of... Those are people who were rejected by God, unbelievers. I think of Jacob, who was one of God's children. But think of the torment that Jacob went through. Remember Jacob? He stole Esau's birthright. And he was always deceiving his way to get what he wanted. And we finally come to chapter 32, and Jacob is restored to his brother Esau, but then he wrestles with God. Remember that scene of him wrestling with God? He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He'd already been blessed. Through his father Isaac, by means of God's blessing, he'd already been blessed, but he lived a tormented life because he was always chasing honor his own way. And I know brothers and sisters in the church, myself included, who are in Christ, but are tormented because they don't believe the honor's theirs. So if you don't believe the honor's yours, you're either going to reject God unto destruction, or if you don't believe the honor is yours, you're going to be a tormented believer. In the end, you find your honor is in Christ because you're connected to him. I intentionally skipped verse 1. And we're going to go back to that as our final thing this morning. Verse 1, before the image of the child, of an infant, before the image of a living stones, there's a command. Put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. What are those things? I propose to you they're the things that you and I turn to when we don't believe we have honor because we're connected to the Son. So we turn to those things to create honor for ourselves. And every one of those things will destroy community. They'll destroy relationship. You see churches that should be this glorious, interconnected, living stones connected to the cornerstone, and churches can be the most fragmented places if somebody just bull rushed the wall and broke all the stones to pieces because of behavior like this. Who does these kinds of things? People who don't believe the honor is theirs to be connected to the rejected stone. And so I ask you, are you or I putting off, like taking off clothing, the malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander that once defined us when we were outside of the people of God. Malice is anger and rage. Deceit is, I'll trick you out to think I'm one thing by, by really lying to you because I'm something else, but I want you to honor me and I want to feel the honor. I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. Hypocrisy, of course, is I know God's law. I can declare his law, but secretly I disobey it. By the way, the antidote to hypocrisy is not righteousness. It's repentance. Envy, 
I'm jealous of anybody who seems to have a better position of honor than I do. Slander, I'll take them down. Brothers and sisters, what can drive this out? What drives this junk out? Craving something better. That's it. Craving something better. So what is it that you want this morning so bad you can taste it? I propose to you that what Peter proposes and what we should want is the honor, security, and connection of being part of the living temple of God. And we'll look at holy priesthood next week, but let's say this. What, are, what was the class of priests called in the Old Testament? They are called Levites. And their whole life was set apart to serve God and his people in the temple. And there are all sorts of different roles that the Levites did. I mean, they had, to, they had to wash the lamp. They had to burn the incense. They got to preach sometimes. They had to pack up the tabernacle to send it out. There were menial roles and glorious roles, public roles and private roles. But what did every Levite have to know? You are in the honored position of being the one who stands between God and his people. Do you know you have that honor? Do the people you work with and live with and stand on sidelines of sporting events with or go to band concerts with or on your street, do they look at you and say, that person doesn't just live with honorable behavior. That person believes they have honor. So they don't choose the dishonorable. They don't need it. And suddenly you're like a priest in your neighborhood, a priest in your workplace, because people come to you for a stability that they can't know. This is an unbelievable book that Peter holds out for us a picture. May we crave it together. Let's pray. Father, this is it's deeper than our words. It's certainly deeper than the time allotted. Would you forgive us if we turn to dishonorable things to create a perception of honor if we don't believe that we are as honored as we are because we are connected to Jesus and we're a stone as a part of a stable structure and you're living in how you build the church and so we're changing, growing and if we don't believe that, Lord, surely we are prone to and pray to destructive things by which we deny the honor that's ours. Forgive us Have mercy on us. And would we crave your word by which we understand the honor that's ours. We ask you to help us in this today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.